as it turns out, you can create intimate experiences online and not only build community, but a place for people to come and share. And it's been so beautiful being a part of people's lives for so long. I mean, I hear from people that I've been practicing with, who've been practicing with me for over a decade all over the world and I get to be with them through marriages, through kids, you know, through big life events, through the highs and the lows. And it's really been one of the most humbling experiences of my life, just having, just being able to be that person in people's lives. Hi, I'm Derek Mills. Welcome to the Glow Podcast. This week's episode features a conversation with the first yoga teacher on the GLOW platform, Joe Testula. And she and I discuss how that came to be prior to us posting her first three classes on GLOW in November 2008. Joe, a mother, daughter, seeker, joined me from her home in Australia to discuss how she has evolved as a teacher, how she unpacks the complex meaning of yoga her experience teaching online, early childhood mystical experiences, and coping with the death of her parents. Since she was our first teacher, I've been eager and excited for her to feature on our podcast. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hi, Joe. So great to be here with you. Hi, Derek. Nice to see you. Nice to see you. I'm sitting here smiling because, you know, when I think about the time, that era before we started Glow, and I think about all the various conversations I had with people in 2007, and as I was exploring just how I was going to start this company, my conversation with you in that year is one of those important early conversations. I don't think I've shared this publicly, so I'll just start off with a little bit of context and what I mean by that. I first took your class in either late 2005 or early 2006. It was right around the time that I moved to Los Angeles from New York City. And I was at a point in my life where I really needed the way that you teach, that you taught back then and the way that you continue to teach today. And for those of you listening that have experienced Joe's classes, you'll likely know exactly what I'm talking about. But for those who haven't, in my experience, and like I mentioned, uh, and still today, well over a decade later, it's that your voice, your energy, the pacing of your guidance is very grounding and soothing. You know, it's hard to put to words, but there's an energy and intention coming from you when you're teaching that ultimately invites my body to say to itself like okay <laughs> big exhale okay now is the time to take time for myself now is a moment to care deeply for myself now is a welcoming time to access vulnerability to be open to inquiry and observation for how my body mind is feeling in the moment and to move and breathe through whatever is coming up in that moment and you do that by taking the student on uh, a lovely flow of postures that also line up so well with whatever topic it is that you're trying to convey in that class. And I think one thing that makes your teaching so powerful is that part of what comes across is that it seems to never be about you. It's as if you have this natural tendency or your, your instinct to be aligned with curiosity and continuous learning and 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 your openness to being in service of something larger than yourself you know in service of of the present when you're teaching that i find provides the space and permission for myself as the student to have my own experience you know not a specific experience you're trying to impose upon me and that combination for me is is a very therapeutic experience so part of why i'm really excited about this particular episode uh, is that I hope you know our conversation in this conversation that we can unpack like what it is about you and how you teach that helps create the conditions for someone to have that experience repetitively. You know, it's not just once or twice, 
you pull this off in my experience every time. And I know that anytime I tune into one of your classes, I'm essentially inviting myself or myselves, plural, into a greater access to whatever is going on for me on, on subtle, more and more subtle levels. And uh, you know, to, to truly connect, help me connect with whatever is going on with myself, you know, in that time in my life. And I think part of it has to do with the fact that you really, as you've mentioned to me over the years, you really don't think of yourself as a yoga teacher. Thank you, Derek. That's really beautiful. Yeah. I, I don't think of myself as a teacher. That's true. Um, I think of myself as a friend. Um, I don't think I'm an authority of any kind, but I have done a lot of inner work. I've done a lot of study, but I'm not a scholar. So when I invite people into my space, I feel like it's a journey that we take together. And I'm not about to assume the experience that one is going to have. In my heart, in my mind, I have an intention and I'll do my best for that to unfold. But ultimately, um, someone is going to experience whatever it is that they're going to experience. And there's nothing worse than someone telling you what you're supposed to feel when you're not feeling that at all, when you're perhaps feeling the opposite. Mm -hmm. That just doesn't work. So I can't assume what one is feeling, but what I, what I can do is invite people to have their own experiences, to invite people for whatever it is that is coming up for them. Like that is their practice. That is their yoga. And I, reflecting on that, I think that it's a really radical thing because we're not often invited to feel our feelings. Um, you know, when in this modern world are we encouraged to feel our feelings? We're not really. We're encouraged to um, use our mental processes. We're encouraged to sort of sit and toe the line and have good manners. And um, and a lot of our just um, natural feelings get suppressed. And over time, that just really bubbles up and starts to build up. And I feel like when people are given the permission to start to feel, then the rivers just open up and begin to um, flow. And I guess that's what you must have been experiencing, that permission to feel and the rivers opening up. And my job is to just hold that space, allow those rivers to flow and just give you permission and um, let you know that, everything is perfect. Everything is fine. Everything in you that you're feeling is a valuable thing to feel and not to push it away and not to be scared of it. Yeah, that's beautiful. And speaking of holding space and open spaces, I can't help but wonder about your childhood and your upbringing, uh, living in the desert in Western Australia. I know you've had early childhood mystical experiences and i'm curious how whatever it is you want to share about your childhood uh you know has shaped your character and, and how you teach yeah i guess my childhood was not the typical one i grew up in the desert in a small mining town in western australia and it was so small that there was just a single dirt road leading into the town so as you drove into the town, there'd be a huge plume of red dust bellowing behind you as far as the eye could see. Um, the town itself was very simple. If you'd blink, you'd miss it. There was a general store, a pub, a post office, a gas station and a school. But apart from that, um, there wasn't anything else. There was no TV. There were no real conveniences. And... Um, my mum would shoo us out of the house, my brother and me. She would yell, go and find something to do. So we could pretty much do anything and go anywhere uh, as long as we were home before the streetlights turned on. Hmm. So we spent a lot of time playing out in the bush, 
the landscape was just stark. It was just red, red dirt as far as the eye could see under the biggest blue sky. And yeah, it, it was harsh. It was hot. It was unforgiving, but it was also so alive. There were the um, Wangutha people, the Wongai people. They were the traditional landowners out there in the desert. They had remarkable survival skills. They were actually a really extraordinary um, tribe of people. There were red kangaroos that that were, you know, when they stood up, they were over eight foot tall. There were emus, which were giant flightless birds, which are similar to ostriches. Um, what else? There were there were giant lizards called racehorse goannas, um, <laughs> flocks of colourful parrots and cockatoos. I mean, it was just, it was just extraordinary. I remember my brother and I camping on our front lawn at nighttime, mm-hmm. and we would watch the animals come in and feed from the grass. There would be um, wild horses, wild goats, and there would even be wild dromedaries, you know, one-humped camels, camels wow. out there. Yeah, so it was magical. It was, it was so magical. And um, so I remember I would ride my bike out into the desert, like over the rocks and the dirt, and I would get, just get far enough away that I could still see our house, but that I couldn't be seen. And I would sit behind a little bush to get pr- protected from the wind, and I would just sit there for like an hour or so not talking, not playing with any toys. I mean, perhaps just poking a stick in an anthill or drawing a pattern in the sand, but, but just sitting there. How old are you roughly at this point? I would say I, w- I would be about seven or eight. Yeah, I would, I would just sit there. It was, it was very zen in a way. And reflecting back, what I think I was doing was connecting to the spirit of the land like occupying that silent space that exists beyond language and beyond conditioning and um, just being one with the desert, just being one with the energy of the desert. Had you been exposed to any rituals or practices that introduced you to land spirit by the traditional landowners you referred to earlier? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I sensed that they had a connection to the land. I sensed that they had a connection to the animals and the plants and they had a culture that I was very drawn to. And I also sensed, um, you know, we, 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 there was a, there was a camp, um, right across the road from us. We didn't, we, we had a neighbor on one side, but the rest of our house was just, um, the neighboring desert. And, um, I would hear songs by the campfire at nighttime. Mm. And um, the dream time for the Aboriginal people is a way of understanding the world and, and the creation of the world. And I can't help but think as I would lie there in bed that I would, my consciousness would become entwined in that dream time. And very much when I was little, I felt a... Um, emerging of my own dream life with my own wakeful life but I did have there was one very distinct mystical experience that I do remember with an aboriginal elder and I must have been about eight or nine years old I guess and I was walking out in the bush with my cousin and she was just a couple of years older than me and we came across an Aboriginal man who was sitting by a campfire and he was carving some wood and making a boomerang, which is a traditional weapon used for hunting like kangaroo or goanna. And I remember he had on a white singlet top. He had muscular arms. He had deep lines across his cheeks and his forehead. And he didn't look up at us when we came close 
and there was such an intriguing feeling in the air. Like ordinarily I would have been scared coming up on a stranger in the bush, but I didn't feel any fear. And this is where my memory takes me into a very strange direction and why I believe it was a mystical experience. I remember sitting behind a tree like I was spying on the old man as he was working the wood by the fire. And my next memory is waking up next to my cousin to find that the man had vanished. Hmm. But it was not only that that he had vanished, also the fire was gone and the, and the chips of wood was gone as though he was never there at all. And instinctively I knew that that was a magical experience. I've got chills. So your cousin was with you from the beginning and and did she have a similar experience? Did did she note how much time had passed? You know, uh, she, I, I can't, I actually haven't talked to her about this for a long time. So I'm, I'm not, I'm not sure. I can't, um, I can't recall her experience of it. And what what do you think happened in that, that gap of time? I think that this man was a spirit. I think that he he was not really in the time that we were in. And I feel like somehow we were peeping into um, getting a, a, a glimpse into this space beyond time. That that's what it feels like to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, it doesn't really it doesn't really make any sense. But but then again, mystical experiences they don't make sense. Mm-hmm. You know, your rational mind cannot make sense of them. Mm-hmm. But I do know that you know from that time or from the experiences that I had on the, on the land, I would search for myst- for magical experiences. I, I would search far and wide for magical experiences, for, for mystical experiences, because um, I knew that they existed. But my mum, my when I would ask my mum and dad uh, uh, about these sorts of things, they would give me re- no real answers, um, no satisfying answers anyway. They they didn't push on me any particular religious views or any worldviews. Uh, but instead they told me to just go and find out for myself. And, al- and although that was very confusing at the time, it definitely ignited and uh, awoken the part of myself that was a seeker. How did you end up living in that area and were your parents connected to the people you know, who, who first inhabited that land? No, not at all. My my dad was a mining engineer. My dad was actually born in Fiji, so he was part Fijian. But um, the town was a small mining town, so my dad worked on one of the mines nearby, which was which was why we were out there in the middle of nowhere. And I knew that there was a there was a big disconnect between. Um, you know, the townspeople, the people who worked in the mine and the traditional people who lived on the land. I knew that there was a disconnect, but at, at that time I was, I was really unable to understand what it was all about. Hmm. So as I would ask for um, information to try to link me in a little bit more into the spirit of the land, I, I didn't get anything. I didn't get anything from my parents because, of course, I don't think that they thought that there was a connection. Mm. Like for you to go and spend time with someone who could have helped maybe unpack or make sense of your experience, that probably wasn't readily available, I'm guessing. No, that's right. That's right. I mean, I had, um, I definitely had exposure and access in in one way, but I was always an outsider. Um, there was not that opportunity to to get in the inner circle and really um, learn the traditional ways. So I learned from the periphery, and a lot of what I 
learned, I think, was just via osmosis and just being so open as a little kid, um, very, very open to, I don't know, energy, for, for lack of a better word. And, um, you know, my mind was very much in touch with the imagine, imagination realm, the, with, with yeah, my mind was open. So I feel like that's, that's, that is one way that I learnt, or that's one way that I sort of got access. Hmm. Not a very satisfying way um, trying to talk about it, but as a kid, I think it was very powerful. Yeah. Well, as you said, those experiences don't lend themselves well to words since they're they're of a different realm. Yeah, that's right. And and as I try and talk about it, I feel quite clumsy because it's true that that did exist in a part of myself where there was no language um, because there can't be language when you're in those spaces. There is no language. There's no real mental processes. You're, you're existing outside of that little limited sphere. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I could be either projecting or stretching here. I think your natural tendency because of your gift of openness and, and openness to that experience and, and subsequent experiences uh, has flowed through into how you teach and how you come across and how you access um, and how you create that connection with other people. I'm, I'm pretty convinced of that. Mm, yeah. Um... There's something about sitting with that discomfort of not being able to through words or vocabulary to, to label that kind of experience or those kinds of experiences and, and, and to take that back with you to come back from wherever you were or are into everyday life. And, and what do you do with that? And you know, there's a, a tension, there's a creative friction there of, of holding both realms simultaneously, you know, as you kind of walk through and, pay the bills, feed your children, uh, maintain healthy relationships, you know, and so on. And I think yeah. part of what's special about you is that you, you walk that fine line. I think, I think when you, um, when you have a mystical experience, your knowledge goes from like secondhand theory to a firsthand lived experience. So there's, and there's a massive difference between the two, right? The second hand requires belief or faith, and there's a real mental component that you have to navigate. But first hand, it lives inside of you, and immediately your worldview is changed, like it has to. Even in yoga, there's a distinction between that is that which is heard and that which is learned. And, um, but from my experience and, and what I've learned about the brain is that our brains are wired for these mystical experiences. It really is our birthright mm -hmm. for these mystical experiences. And because I, um, I've had the privilege to, um, have some of these very peak moments, I can sort of hold that space for others mm -hmm. to have the same. Beautiful. I thought that's what you'd say, but I, <laughs> 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 I wanted to see how you would navigate that. <laughs> that's really, really beautiful. So let's go back to 2007 ish. You know, I, I approached you after one of your classes, we walked out onto the pier at Manhattan Beach. And I'll never forget it because I was nervous and excited at that point because I had already decided that I was going to invest all of my savings and max out all of my credit to start this company. And I pitched the idea to you. I don't recall exactly the conversation, but I probably conveyed 
some version of how uh, this is a, a, an experiment and that I had no idea how this was going to turn out. And I don't think I also mentioned this to you that at the time, my friends and family thought I was a bit crazy, uh, except for my brother, Ryan, who started this all with me. Um, since then, they've all disclosed that they were a little concerned for me, mainly because I didn't have a financial safety net to fall back on. But I, I'm so curious, and I think our listeners would find it interesting as well. You know, now looking back, what was that experience like for you being one of the first to stream your teaching on the web via a subscription service? Now, I remember personally in those early years being met with hostility from certain people who expressed in, in various ways that it wasn't okay to stream yoga classes online. What was that like for you? I remember, I remember that moment. It's, it's really is etched in my mind. Um, it was a, it was a really pivotal moment. Uh, I didn't realize it at the time, but I, I do remember having that conversation with you. And I just remember honestly thinking that it was a great idea, you know, from someone who grew up in a very remote town with very little conveniences. I, I just thought it was brilliant to be able to, you know, have your favorite yoga teacher with you no matter where you are. So I remember just being extremely enthusiastic and, um, and I loved being part of those early beginnings just very humble beginnings where we were just trying to work it out. You know, um, <laughs> I remember we were trying to work out where, where to put the camera and we wanted someone to have the experience that they were in a class, which was why we ended up using that camera at the back locked off because we didn't want it to be overproduced. We didn't want any of that production value. Um, we, we wanted it just to be, this pure experience of being in a yoga class because we all love that. I mean, you, your brother Ryan practiced yoga. You had that experience in class and you wanted um, other people to have that experience from home. And I loved that. And I thought it was wonderful. And, um, but I, I do remember as well, just like you getting um, quite a bit of flack from other teachers just because at the time, um, you know, the the LA yoga scene that we were a part of was was really something huge. Um, there was a lot of momentum to it, a lot of excitement to it, and there's also, you know, a lot. There was a hierarchy, and um, you, you know, so you so you had you had your peers, you had your senior teachers, and and you and you and you of course wanted to listen to all of that feedback. Um, so the concern was that you couldn't give a real transmission of yoga um, over the internet. You you had to be face to face, and um, but thankfully we were both really naive and didn't take on board that <laughs> criticism too much because, as it turns out, you can. <laughs> Yeah, intimate experiences online and um, not only build community, but a place for people to come and share. And it's been so beautiful being a part of people's lives for so long. I mean, mm. I hear from people that I've been practicing with, who've been practicing with me for over a decade. All over the world. And all over the world. And I get to be with them through marriages, through kids, you know, through big life events, through the highs and the lows. And it's really been one of the most humbling experiences of my life. Just having just, um, you know, being, being able to be that, uh, person in people's lives. So, so thank you, Derek. It's been an extraordinary opportunity and, and, a wild ride. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and thank you. I mean, thank you for trusting me. Uh, I, I received way more no's than yeses, especially in the early days. Initially you were my only yes. And, uh, you're right. I, I desperately wanted to create this experience of being in a real class at home. And I even went so far as to 
try to consult with people who had produced DVDs or were at the film schools here locally in LA. And I just, like you said, luckily I was naive enough and young enough and uh, maybe um, a few more adjectives enough to, to not listen to any of that because it just was not what you would do in any traditional setting. None of what we did was what one would do in a professional filming yeah. environment at the time. And yeah, and I was new to LA and I didn't, I only knew one person when I moved here. So I didn't have a full appreciation for the hierarchy that you uh, delicately referred to. And mm. so I, I think, um, yeah, I, I uh, not out of a lack of respect, just out of a lack of, maybe just out of ignorance, just said, this will be a really fun project. And I think a lot of people will really benefit from it and we could change a lot of lives around the world. So let's just do it. So yeah, yeah, here we are. Here we are, here we are. And the entire world is online. Yes. Even, even more so than ever right now. That's right. That's right. Yeah. yeah and a lot of people are benefiting from it, you know, not just from our service, but from so many other services like ours and, and so on. The last time we spoke, you were considering writing a book. Is that still the case? And if so, like, what is it that's itching inside of you that wants to be expressed in a book? Well, the answer is yes. Um, I am writing a book. The book is about the biggest mystical experiences of my life. It's an account of a very painful time, but very powerful time. Um, a time where I was um, traveling to Peru and doing um, ceremonies with a master teacher plant in the Amazon over a two year period. And in those ceremonies, I experienced my parents' death, even before they were known to be ill. And ultimately, this premonition coming true and the journey of my parents dying. At the same time, and by the same entity being guided to my soulmates and creating a family. So I had this small condensed time where I experienced birth and death side by side you know, sort of like ships in the night of the most important people in my life. So the book is called The Yoga of Birth and Death. And it's an epic project to undertake. But yeah, currently, it's far, far, far from finished. <laughs> but ultimately, I want to write the book that um, I wish I had had at the time, mm -hmm. a, a book to support you um, as you bear witness to the often painful, but also miraculous, beautiful moments of birth and death. Um, birth and death have, for the most part, been taken away from our direct experience and filtered through other hands, which sanitize and numb and, and medicalize these, these sacred transitions. And, and when we're fully present to it all, the pain, the blood, the gore, the fear, the terror, the ecstasy, you know, this is the yoga. In order for us to understand who we really are, to live our life fully, we, like we need to feel the story of our own birth and death. And, and we can do this through the presence of others. Birth and death are sacred doorways into the great beyond which is where we've all come from and when we're all and where we're all returning to and to be awake with clear vision and intimate at these incredible moments, it gives you um, just a deeper understanding of life itself. I'm, I'm sitting here nodding. I can't stop nodding. I can't wait to read this book. I'm resisting the temptation to, you said so much that I, I want to, <laughs> I want to pull on all those threads. Uh, and, and I'm guessing if, if, uh, if I were listening to this interview, I, were, I, I would wish that I would do so. But uh, let, let's wait. Let's wait until you get closer 
to publishing the book and we can go deeper on some of those topics. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, up until this point, it's actually been a grueling process and, and quite painful to relive, which is which is why it's taking so long. But just talking about it now is is inspiration to keep going. So I can imagine. So, yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. I've had intense, deep experiences through plant medicine, and if what you're suggesting is that your book will also serve somewhat as a guide to maybe read pre or and or post it's certainly a book that i could have used and yeah and would have benefited from so the title working title uh, could be yoga the yoga of birth and death and you know, yoga in america is typically thought of as modern postural yoga like the postural exercise that um is commonly thought of as yoga, you know, here in this country, in, in the country, in the United States of America. Um, and, and I suspect in, in many other uh, countries as well. Uh, at large, obviously, there are pockets of, of people everywhere who have a deeper understanding of the complex meaning of, of the word yoga. Um, but for someone who, uh, you know, might be listening, who, who does think of the word yoga more associated with postural exercise, I can imagine this title could be a little confusing. Like, what do you mean yoga, birth, and death? So how do you typically, if someone asks you, like, what is your definition of yoga? Or how do you convey the meaning of yoga, especially as it would pertain to a title like that? When someone asks me, what is yoga? I tell them I don't know. Great answer. <laughs> I'm going to start using that one. <laughs> I'm still trying to work it out. Nice. <laughs> to be honest, I knew you would ask me uh, this question, what is yoga? And, um, you know, I know, of course, in my heart what yoga is, but it just, it, it changes all the time. And, um, you know, I think back to a talk that Richard Freeman gave one time about um, trying to grasp the concept of yoga being similar to trying to hold onto an avocado seed. And as soon as you think you have it in your fingers and you hold down on it, it slips out of your grip. So that to me, I, I really resonate with that. And when I try to get really studious and, um, and, and lean into the more philosophical uh, landscape of yoga, you know, it's so vast. So vast. This word has been so... used over thousands of years. And, um, and uh, whose book was I reading recently? David, David Gordon White's book. And he, he does talk about um, you know that that in the Sanskrit dictionary, the word yoga is is the word that has the most definitions than any other word, mm -hmm. and it can and it can mean you know from the most medial task to the most esoteric um, dimension and everything in between. So, so that leaves a lot of scope for personal. Um, for 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 your own personal beliefs which is really nice which i appreciate so for me yoga is both the means and it's both the goal as well so yoga is the thing that we do to create the yoga so the yoga is the asana practice the yoga is the you know, the pranayama and the meditation, but yoga is also the state that one um, can enter into where we are with clear vision and see things how they really are. We're absolutely connected to reality. And when we are awake with clear vision, we realize that we are in relationship with all things. And 
relationship is really about intimacy. It's really about realizing that there is a process of taking in and there is a process of giving. And so for me, really the yoga is these things that we do so that we can prepare ourselves for being absolutely present and intimate with this moment and not letting it slip by. So when it comes to these moments of birth and death, you know, you only have one chance to be there. You can't do a redo of someone's death. You can't do a redo of someone's birth. And if you miss it, it's gone. So the yoga is all of the training and the preparation so that at these moments we're absolutely there with all of our being in this intimacy for everything it is and we allow ourselves to be transformed by it. That was a very long-winded answer. That's, that's beautiful. That's really, that's really lovely. Thank you. Yeah. So it sounds like I'll also need the book for birth and death experiences on the horizon. Yes, I'm thinking of, I'm thinking, um, you know, I'm really loving listening to audio books at the moment. I'm thinking of, um, of doing an audio book, doing this as an audio book. I think that'd be lovely. I really hope it's your voice. Yeah. Yeah, I, I find I'm a little bit picky that way. I don't know if you are, but when I um, when I listen to an audio book, if it's not from the author, I find it really hard to get into. Mm-hmm. There's something about the author and, um, you know, just just this this extra layer of information that comes through when they read the, the words that they've written that I love. I love that too. Uh, you know, nothing against those who are doing the voiceover. Um, instead of the author, but yeah, I agree with you. I, I tend to uh, feel a, more of an intimate connection with the material yeah. and when it's the author's voice. Yeah. Yeah. So, so thank you. I'm, 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 um, I'm inspired and I will keep going. Oh, go Joe. Soldiering you on. got this. <laughs> <laughs> the world needs your book. And, yes. and everything that will flow <laughs> before and after. Yeah. 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 I'm sure. I'm sure once, um, you know, once I sort of lay it all out there, um, there's going to be a lot of um, unpacking that needs to happen and, and um, a lot of discussion about these things that perhaps are quite controversial, but nonetheless, um, a lot of the things that, that we're talking about, are things that human beings have done since the beginning of time. Yeah. So and what's only controversial in our modern context. Right. Not and I, historically. And I think what you're referring to is becoming less and less controversial. Yeah. Which is wonderful. Which is so wonderful. So when we look at, so you've been teaching now for a while, this thing called yoga, which you so eloquently defined, not defined. And I know that, uh, your, your virtuosity, I know you, you, because of, of the fact that you have a virtuosity in in how you teach, I know that you view the entire arc of your teaching, you know, from having started to where you are now. And I'm just curious for you know, this might be interesting for people who are teachers or aspiring teachers. So how do you see that difference from where you were towards the beginning and where you are now? Is Are there any major noticeable differences in terms of either how you think about what you might teach or how you might teach it or how you link sequences together or how you might link topics with sequences or anatomy? Is there anything that really stands out to you uh, that that kind of gives us a sense for that evolution in your own virtuosity. Yeah, there there absolutely is, and um, people probably do not know this about me, but I am very nerdy when it comes to recording 
my classes and I have little journals in a file uh, in a box that contain every single class that I have ever taught over the last you know, 17 years your, or whatever. Your beautiful stick figures, which look like some <laughs> alien hieroglyphic language yeah. that is sort that's, of conveying that's right. the secrets just, of the universe. Just books and books and books of these little stick figures. Um, but I find it's really helpful to have a record. So you actually can look back and see what you were teaching. Um, otherwise, you know, memory is just not that reliable and so i i do often pull the box out and have a look what i was doing and i think the the biggest difference with where i'm at now to where i was say 10 years ago maybe a little bit more was that initially i was a people pleaser and really wanted people to like my class and to um, and I wanted to do things to appeal to people so that they would like my class. Um, it's not that I don't want pe people to like my class now. <laughs> um, so in order to do that, I, I would do very extravagant sequences and I would throw in a lot of um, hard asanas and, you know, I, I, I would do things that I thought people would like and therefore come back to my class. And, and, and I think that that's innocent enough. I think a lot of teachers do that. And, um, you know, and let's face it, if no one comes to your class, you don't have a job, right? So there is, there should be a little bit of that discernment. But ultimately where I'm at now is that I've really simplified the practice and I've had a, I've had a deep look into my own soul about what is it that I'm doing for people? And if I'm not holding their well-being at the highest intention, then I'm really not serving them at all. So I think that's been the biggest arc is going from holding their opinion as my highest purpose to holding their well-being as my highest purpose. And that often just looks quite simple. It's often not not that exciting and flashy as it once was, but I would say in the place of that is a little more depth and a little more opportunity to go beyond the physical and go into the subtle landscape, which is a lot of what we've been talking about. And for me, ultimately, that's, that's the real space mm -hmm. that um that we need to occupy to be in this place of yoga i love that let's let that seep in for a bit well before i ask you what your self-care non-negotiables are i want to give a shout out to the work that you and your extremely lovely husband are doing on uh, the app that uh, the two of you have uh, where you have a lot of wonderful Dharma talks. Uh, Stu also has a, a powerful podcast uh, on which sometimes you appear. Could you share a bit of, uh, I just want to give Stu a shout out and, and, and the work that you're doing. So maybe you could you know, tell us like a little bit about that yeah. or, or, or direct us to where we can find it. Absolutely. Thank you. Yes, Stu is... Um, not only the love of my life, but the technical director of the household. And he is just such a beautiful person and so with such an awesome work ethic and um, everything that he does, he throws his complete heart and soul into. And I feel like he's sort of beyond his years. I mean, he's, he's, um, a little, little younger than me, shall I say, but his wisdom, <laughs> his wisdom just exceeds um, 
his age and so we've had a lot of fun creating this app yoga heart mind and we want it to really be about the spiritual life in the domestic setting so we talk a lot about family life in the spiritual um landscape and practices and dharma talks and there's a lot of stuff on there um Stu also has his podcast the, the Stuart Watkins podcast but we're about to merge that with the yoga heart mind so that is mm. going to be the yoga nice. heart mind so we'll sort of have one little home for all of that to um exist okay joe last question so what are your self-care non-negotiables my self-care non-negotiables so you know i live a healthy lifestyle and at this point it's quite effortless um but there definitely was a time where that wasn't the case so back when i was trying to make some big changes to some old troublesome habits i had major non non-negotiables you know i I I would go on these extreme cleanses. I needed to do a long asana practice, um, you know, get regular body work, like all of these things. I really had to take care of my mental health. But now that machine is just so well oiled that day to day, I just need moments. Like I just need moments, moments of feet on the earth, face in the sun, like moments of just tuning into my own dialogue, you know, a little bit of movement, meditation. So I think now my non-negotiables are more of just being a good human like I want to evolve and break through the limitations and the conditioning and, and and not pass them on to my daughters. And I think of my teacher Ramdas, um, his guru named Karoli Baba told him to love everyone, serve everyone and remember God. And for me, like that's the Holy grail of wellness. So they would be the non-negotiables that, um a quite uh you know whether i'll ever get there is 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 another point but um it's 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 my it's my guiding light of how of how i want to live my life that's a wonderful spot to end our conversation thank you so much joe oh thank you so much derek so good to talk to you Thank you to our entire team behind the scenes at GLOW. I'm so grateful for your care and commitment to serving our members around the world. Thank you to our teachers for so beautifully sharing your gifts and talents. I'm also grateful to our lovely community of GLOW members. You've supported us since 2008, and because of you, we get to continue to do the work we love. It's the combined support of our team, our teachers, and our community that grants me the privilege to continue to bring you the GLOW podcast. Thank you to Lee Schneider, Red Cub Agency for production support. And the beautiful music you're hearing now is by Carrie Rodriguez and her husband, Luke Jacobs. And remember, take care of yourself because our world needs you. Thank you for coming on this journey with me. You can find the Glow Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or glo.com slash podcast, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Derek Mills. Mm-hmm.